the reading tonight is from Hosea, uh, starting at chapter 1, verse 2. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them. Not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhama, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. As we begin, I'll lead us in a prayer. Here's some words from the end of Hosea. The ways of the Lord arise, the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Our Father, we thank you that your ways arise. And so as we look at your word now, that you would help us to see its goodness and truthfulness. And so, Father, that we might not be those who stumble, but those who walk in your words. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my worst memories of school was when I got in big trouble over something I did pretty seriously wrong. It all started because I was part of a class on the top floor of the school. And where we were on the top floor, there was no teachers that would walk past, so we were pretty much unsupervised for most of the time. And I remember for one day, one of my classmates decided, for no apparent reason, to rip the security tag off of a fire extinguisher. And then another classmate thought it was a good idea just to pull out the pin. It was kind of a game of dare, and you know we upped the ante each time. And another classmate fell on the fire extinguisher, so it let out a bit of water. And we all thought, goodness, we're all going to be in trouble now. No one ever does that in school. But a few days went past and nothing actually happened. Uh, No teachers saw, no one came back to us. Uh, And then a few days after that, I remember one of my classmates bad-mouthed another classmate, and so he decided to get the hose of the fire extinguisher and just squirt it straight in his face. And I thought, again, we're going to be in pretty big trouble. 
I mean, you're not meant to do that with fire extinguishers. Uh, we're told that from day one. Uh, but again, nothing happened, and we thought we got away with it. And so much so that the spraying just kept going up and up, uh, so much that we were having full-on water fights, not just with that fire extinguisher, but we were grabbing fire... You're not meant to laugh at this. This is terrible. Um, we were grabbing fire extinguishers from different places in the school and basically having full-on water fights at the top of the school. Until one day. We came into the changing room uh, to have our PE lesson, and we were told it's all cancelled. We had to go in to sit down. We thought, that's a bit strange. And then several teachers came in, carrying empty fire extinguishers, threw them down, and they said, we want names, and parents are coming in. And I remember that feeling of realisation suddenly hitting me. It's coming back to me now, in fact. (laughs) For weeks, I thought I was okay. That no one, my mum won't hear this, will she? Uh, I thought I was okay for weeks. No one minded. It didn't matter. No one saw. But now I'd been found out. My sins have caught up with me, you might say. Well, the book of Hosea is meant to have that effect on us. Uh, That's the book we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. And it is a book that wants to get us right between the eyes, uh, get us to sit up and listen. It's the equivalent of throwing down the fire extinguishers. See, as we've already seen in this reading, the book is full of shocking imagery, and it is full of shocking messages. Uh, And it's not designed to shock us for the sake of it. It's designed to shake us out of our complacency. See, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, the people Hosea writes to thought they were okay, like me at school. They had money in the bank, they had food on the table, they had comfortable lives... And when it came to God, they thought everything was sweet. They, after all, had a special covenant, a special relationship. They went to church, they said the confession, they read the creed. And yet, in this book, God breaks in and shows us what's really in his heart. He tells us what the real situation is, what things look like from his perspective. It's the fire extinguisher on the floor moment. And this is why I think we're going to see over the next few weeks, this is a highly important book for us today. Because I think, um, like the people in Hosea's day, we too live in a culture of divine complacency. See, if God exists, and a lot of people still assume he does, we expect that he's going to be okay with us. If there's anything to forgive, of course he'll forgive it. I love it. It's summed up in the words of um, Henrik Hein, the poet. You may have come across it. He says this, of course God will forgive me. It's his job. See, hardly anyone in our Western culture worries about sin or worries about that God might be angry with sin. And of course that complacency doesn't just stay out there in the world, it comes into our church life as well. We think, of course God's going to be okay with me. I've grown up in a Christian family. Of course God's going to be okay with me. I'm part of the Church of England after all. Or we say things like, it doesn't matter what I do. God always forgives. Now, if you've ever been tempted to think that, I have, I admit that, uh, this book is for you. Because it's designed to shake us out of a complacency. Show us what's really going on under the bonnet. But then it will, as we're going to see, drive us to Jesus and appreciate him much, much more. And this first chapter, which we're going to focus in on tonight, shows three shocks right from the outset. First of all, we see a shock in marriage. We see a shocking set of offspring. Uh, But we're going to see a shocking reversal as well. See, I think verse 2 of chapter 1 is one of the most difficult commands in the Bible. Uh, Have a look at it. It's on page 900. 
when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So God tells Hosea to go and plan a wedding, but notice the choice of bride. I mean, if we're being polite, we might say she has a reputation. But actually, the the word, it's translated adulterous wife here. Actually, that doesn't quite capture it. It kind of suggests that she may have been uh, faithful when she started. But actually, the word used here is the word for prostitute. It's the same word used, for example, Tamar in Genesis. And the old versions uh, use the word harlot or whoredom. So Hosea is told to go and plan a wedding... But it's not the nice church girl he's looking at. It's not the CU uh, member. It's someone from the red light district. Now, why on earth would God ask a prophet to do such a thing? Well, you see, it's a picture, don't you? Verse 2 again. Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. See, God says, go and marry a prostitute because my people have been like a prostitute. Now, we need to note here that God isn't demonizing prostitutes. He's not making them the worst of all sinners. And we do need to remember that Jesus has compassion on them. He says to the religious leaders, truly I tell you that the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. But God uses this imagery of the prostitute to capture the people's unfaithfulness. See, the the thing about a prostitute, the thing about that profession, is that it's all about selling your body to the highest bidder. See, while a prostitute is with a man, uh, she will be telling him that he's the only one, and all the time he's playing, she's faithful to paying, uh, she's all faithful to him. But the, the moment that time's up, she goes back on the street to the next paying customer, and the next, and the next, and the next. And this is what God is saying my people are like. They say they love me. They say they're always for me. They're saying the creeds in church. But then a week later, they're going to other lovers, and other gods, they're no better than a woman who sells her body to one man and another and another and another. See, God, I hope we can see here, needed to really shock the people. He needed to show them what they're truly like. See, if you think about it, Hosea could have done this through a sermon, couldn't he? He could have stood up and said, you've been unfaithful. He could have done a sermon series on the unfaithfulness of Israel. But it would miss something, I think. It would miss the shock. Uh, You may be aware in um, 1963 that a Buddhist monk uh, burned himself alive on the main road uh, in Vietnam, uh, in Saigon. Uh, Maybe you were around to see it. Um, I was going to put a picture, but it's pretty horrific. Uh, But the idea was that it would raise the profile of the Buddhists uh, that were being persecuted in South Vietnam. Now, I'm by no means endorsing that method at all, but you've got to admit that it had a power that the spoken word didn't have. See, the monk could have stood up and said, you're persecuting us, could have uh, spoken to the, the authorities about it, but it wouldn't have had that same punch. And it's similar here. The people are to watch God's prophet say his wedding vows to a prostitute so that they will get what God is saying. You can just imagine, can't you, all the chatter it would create. How long is that going to last, Hosea? Don't you know who she's been with? And Hosea says... Well, my bride is like you and your faithfulness. I wonder how much we get the scandal and shock of sin. 
See, um, often we speak about sin as missing the mark or falling short or not living up to God's standards. And they're all true things. The Bible talks about sin in that way. But there is a danger sometimes that we kind of sanitize sin or we kind of tone it down or keep it at arm's length. But how about this image? Your faithfulness is like a prostitute. See, our sin isn't a problem like a little hiccup. It's not just doing the occasional wrong. It's loyalty like a prostitute. And maybe that's a bit of a shock for us to hear. And maybe we think, actually, that is too shocking uh, to hear. But actually, I don't think we can become a Christian until we've grasped this. See, the first step of being a Christian is to grasp the depth of the problem. It's not about kidding ourselves that we're better than we are. It's not saying that we've fallen short in a couple of areas. It is recognizing that our loyalty to God is like this. It's worth just saying in passing, by the way, that this is why we need God's word to expose us constantly. I don't know about you, I always see myself in a good light. I was able to justify myself about the fire extinguishers. But we constantly need God's word, don't we, to show us what we're truly like. Now, why does this matter? Well, on our second point here, we see that Hosea lives out another shocking image, but or rather three images. Uh, the prostitute, uh, Goma, his new wife, has three children, and God names each of those children. Now, having children of my own, I've got to say that naming children is one of the most stressful experiences of my life. It's not a fun experience. Uh, the key question you're always asking yourself as a parent is, will they grow up to fit the name? And so there's no point in calling your son Spartan if they're going to grow up to be built like a matchstick. You know, they've got to reflect that. And it's similar here that God chooses names for these children that they will live into, they will grow into. Or or rather, they reflect the state of what the nation is going to grow into. See, the first child, uh, first child rather, we see in verse 4, then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Now, Jezreel became a place that was synonymous with bloodshed. Uh, When King Jehu came to the throne, here's King Jehu. You'll see him. You can see this at the British Museum. Uh, It's uh, it's, uh, on an obelisk. That's right. Uh, And um, there's Jehu. He's bowing down to the king of Assyria. Uh, But before he did that, uh, when he came to the throne, he killed all the rulers of the previous dynasty. And he had all the priests of the gods slaughtered, And the place he did it was Jezreel. So it's like naming your child Auschwitz or Dunblane. It was synonymous with massacre and bloodshed. But more than that, Jezreel was a play on the name Israel. See, in Hebrew, um, when you say a a J, you say it like a Y. So in Hebrew, it reads Yezreel, which sounds very much like Israel. And so Israel's name is becoming associated with something awful. It's like saying, you're not St. Mary's, you're St. Scary's, or something like that. (laughs) Don't let that catch on, please. (laughs) You know, imagine that. Now, what's interesting about this massacre is that it happened decades before God speaks this word, and it seemed like everything was okay. It seems like there was no consequences, like me at school. But God sees, and God will visit their sin. He says, I will put an end to the kingdom. And the picture gets even more gloomy with the second child, verse 6. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, 
For I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. So you'll see in the footnote there that uh, uh, lo ramahama uh, means not loved. And you can just imagine, can't you, the school register? Joseph, here miss. Daniel, here miss. Rebecca, here miss. Not loved, here miss. And you can imagine all the children after school saying, why are you called not loved? And the parents at the school gate saying, who does Hosea think he is? Naming his daughter not loved. But Hosea explains, it's because the people, you, are no longer loved by your God. And the third child, born in verse 8, puts the final nail in the coffin. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Those words might be familiar, uh, my people and your God. They're the words of the covenant. See, God made a, a special agreement with his people. It's called the covenant. It was like a marriage. And in that covenant, he said, I will be your people, and uh, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But notice what he's saying now. Not my people, and not your God. See, the whole point of these children is to show, in a shocking way, that it's over. That your special relationship with God is finished. And it wasn't just a warning. It wasn't just a bluff. Because only a few years after these words were written, this message played out. Um, this, uh, we're going to see this over the next few weeks, but Hosea was written in a time where Assyria was on the rise. And you'll see on this map, there's all sorts of arrows going everywhere, that um, basically that's Assyria just getting very, very big. And uh, a few years after this was written, Jehu, um, um, descendant Zechariah, was assassinated. That dynasty came to an end. And a few years after that, in 722, uh, the, uh, the huge empire, Assyria, led by Shalmaneser V, again, you can see all this at the British Museum, uh, came into Israel and completely burnt it to the ground. Uh, there he is there. Uh, you may recognize him on the left. Uh, he came in and completely destroyed the place. Uh, rape the population, force them to intermarry, force them to adopt all their customs. Now, why this method? Why the three children? Why put them through the misery of these three names? Again, Isaiah could have preached three sermons, couldn't he, on, uh, actually, you're not going to be my people. You're not going to be loved. But he may not have got the hearing that this shocking image gets. It makes people sit up and listen to the fact that God will judge that sin does eventually have consequences. See, this reminds us, doesn't it, that God really does care about wrongdoing, and he will really bring justice. See, we live in a culture, I think, where we doubt God's judgment. We think it's something that won't happen. We think it's something that primitive people used to believe. But Hosea is written to a people that doubted judgment as well and says it will come, and it did for them. Now, just look over the page um, to chapter 12, verse 8, and just to give us a bit of context to what they're, they're feeling. It's on page 908. So, you just look at what the Israelites were saying. Uh, it says, Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I've become wealthy. With my wealth, they will not find out me. In, in, oh, sorry, with all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. So just hear what the people are saying. They're saying, look, I'm very rich, I'm doing well, and so there is no sin, there is no consequence for judgment. 
See, money in the bank always dulls the senses. We think that life is okay. I'm doing okay. Just like me with a fire extinguisher on the top floor. It's fine. But here God is breaking into that complacency and saying, I do care about sin. I will judge. I will bring this world to an end. But God has one more shock for us this evening. And this one is not like the others. Have a look at verse 10, uh, back on uh, chapter 1. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In a place it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but verse 10 is one of those verses that you read it and you think, have I read that right? Because we've had negative, 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 and then suddenly, positive. God said, your faithfulness is like a prostitute. You're not going to be my people. I'm going to bring judgment. And now he's saying, actually, you're going to be like the sand on the seashore. But those words are words of the covenant. See, God spoke similar words to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's what he says to Jacob. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand on the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So God is saying, on the one hand, you're not going to be my nation anymore. I'm going to bring judgment. It's coming to an end. But on the other hand, I'm going to keep my promise. You're going to be as numerous as grains of silicon dioxide on the world's beaches. See, where you're not my people, you're going to be sons of the living God. Where you're not going to be loved, you're going to be one day called my children. It's another shock, isn't it? But this time, it is a shocking reversal. It's a shocking picture of God's grace. It's like the epilogue at the end of the film, where we see kind of life afterwards, after it's all been put right. And, you know, at the end of The Lord of Rings, you go to the Shire and everyone's happy again. Except here, there's no actual resolution. It's just, there's no kind of ring in Mount Doom. It's just that everything is going to change. So how on earth is this possible? It's on page 1136. Romans chapter 9, and he says this, about people like you and me becoming God's people. Verse 24, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Isaiah, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Seems a strange place for Paul to go, to prove that Gentiles have become part of God's people. Because back in Isaiah, there's no mention of Gentiles, as we've seen. In fact, it's all about excluding Israel. But Paul knows, I think, how this story played out. Because Paul knows that centuries after Hosea was written, there was another Israelite, a true Israelite, who showed complete faithfulness to God, even when tested to the limits. And he deserved, like no one, to have God as his God and for him to be God's uh, people. But instead of blessing, 
he received curse. He gave himself up. His blood was shed so that he was called not loved, so that he was treated as not my people, so that as he died, as he was raised to life, people like you and me would be called children of the living God. I think that's why Paul says here that we're included, because Israel couldn't be included by themselves. They couldn't be good children on their own. Their faith was like a prostitute, and all they incurred was judgment. But God says, I will do it. I will make you my children. None of us can boast in our performance. Our loyalty is like a prostitute. None of us has a leg to stand on when it comes to God. But because of his promise, because of Jesus, you receive mercy. You are children of the living God. One of the the big questions I've had with my prep this week is, um, why put judgment and hope together uh, in this first chapter? Um, See, if I was writing Hosea, and, um, you know, I'm not, but uh, if I was, I would write the first half being about judgment and the second half being about hope. That would be a good way to do it, wouldn't it? Uh, Judgment, 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 but there's hope at the end. But Hosea doesn't do that, does he? He goes straight from judgment to hope. And the reason I think he does is because he wants us to see our true state, but he wants to not leave us there. He wants us to see that hope is found in God's promise. See, Hosea wants to do two things with us. He wants to say, if you're trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in your church performance, in how you look, then that is a complete dead end. Shine the spotlight of God's word on your life, and it looks like the faithfulness of a prostitute. And judgment is sure to follow. But Azir wants to say, there is God's promise. You deserve God's anger, but you will be called his people through Jesus. And so as we look at this chapter, let us be aware of that danger of divine complacency. Let Hosea shock us. Let Hosea diagnose our heart, be honest with ourselves. But let us not despair there. Let us not despair of our state cling to Christ, go to him, for through him, people like you and me can be called children of the living God. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you so much for your grace towards us. Please lead us not into the temptation of thinking we're better than we are. Please, Father, help us to listen to what your word says about our hearts. And so, Father, may that drive us to Christ and the achievement he has made. And Father, we pray that you would encourage us all in these words, in Jesus' name. Amen.